Hi-ho, Chibi Mythos here, and welcome to the Little Old People Podcast. I'm here with my co-old person, Mark, a.k.a. Hey, the hey, Little Black hey, the Dude. Black Dude. <laughs> <laughs> if this is your first time listening, we're two oldish nerds looking at random fandoms from varying directions. I'm a historian and archaeologist by degree and a wage slave by trade. Mark is a jeweler, YouTube enthusiast, and fellow fan. <laughs> Ah, now, Captain Sama and I have been friends for over a decade, and yet we've only just discovered our mutual interest in this episode's particular topic. I first heard of The Hobbit when I was about 10 or so, and was acquainted with both that and The Lord of the Rings through the Ralph Bakshi animations from the, the 70s and 80s. I also didn't really know the depth of the series until the movies came out around 2001. And I personally came to love today's topic through the films it inspired, and that in turn sent me back to the literature sources and even further back. I live and breathe in this world now, and it is all thanks to Professor John, Old John Ronald Rule Tolkien and Sir Peter Jackson. So Mark, I have to ask, you mentioned the Bakshi films. Have you actually watched them? I did watch the other uh, Bakshi version of The Lord of the Rings, and I gotta say, it is a very different movie than uh, the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings. Both are telling basically the same story, but the manner in which they're doing so is ridiculously different. And I gotta say, I love both films, but because I'm more of an animation nerd, I was more into watching the other Bakshi film. Even so, like many of the people I've known, I was only passingly familiar with the books before seeing mm. the movies and sure. not really immersed in the culture to the point that I could give a TED talk. <laughs> not, yes. Novels aren't really, you know, intimidating to me. It's just I find myself with more of a comic book attention span. Hey, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Novelizations of any kind, by their very existence, differ from films. They allow the reader to participate in the narrative in their own unique way. The experience is different. How do you feel when you watch the films versus reading the books? Well, as I mentioned before, I love the films. The actors were all perfectly suited to their roles. The costumes were on point. Howard Shore's musical score swells your soul. And the settings were crafted by God himself for these films. I will get to New Zealand one day or die trying. <laughs> you know, as to the books, especially with Tolkien, they add a level of richness to the story that by its very nature is impossible with film. That said, I tend to watch the films first and use those as visuals to help enhance the text. Does that same process happen for you with, with TV shows adapted from books? Because when DC first started making uh, shows based on their uh, comic properties, like Smallville, for example, uh, uh, the original Flash, eh, the original Flash from the uh, the '90s as well, <laughs> uh, I had a tough time at first finding the desire to watch them. And from the days of Smallville, I was kind of gun shy about DC's television shows. And then Arrow happened. Suddenly, I felt like there was there was potential for shows based on comics, and I gave it a shot. And then I gave it a shot again with a Flash TV show when uh, when they you know had Grant Gustin you know starring mm -hmm. as Barry Allen. Since they were using the comics as a base for the world, in addition to building a narrative for a more visual medium, it it had greater impact to me. Do you think that's possible for Lord of the Rings? Yeah, I 100% believe that a transition can be made. 
honestly, it can be made even greater with a TV show. And now that there's the new Amazon show that's rumored to take place before the main books in the second age, which is covered extensively in the book, The Silmarillion, I'm looking forward to this show with a giant globe-sized asterisk besides that statement. You know, and why the doubt, you know, when the second age is full of the awesome stories like the fall of Gondolin? Well, it is also cluttered with, you know, romantic drivel like Baron and Luthien and, you know, Meglin, who's trying to bone his cousin, you know, Idril. I find all these stories to be asides and tedious, and I kind of dislike the story of Baron and Luthien. <laughs> now, a lot of people really like it. Tolkien loved that story. He compared, he called his wife Luthien, you know, the most beautiful elf to ever live. And, you know, I love that he loves his wife, but the story's still tedious, <laughs> and I find it difficult to get into. Um, but that could be a personal issue with me as opposed to, you know, how somebody else feels. But I know that is one of those things that Tolkien fans will fight to the death on, and that's fine, but I still find the story tedious. Mm. So. <laughs> um, I wish I could argue the uh, the point a little further, but I have no understanding of the Silmarillion. So a show based on its contents does appeal to me. The, I can kind of see it now. It'll be another Game of Thrones type situation where people of decidedly non-nerdy backgrounds will feel a kinship with those of us who mm -hmm. were previously acquainted. It's tough to overcome the knee-jerk, emphasis on jerk in my case, <laughs> reaction to saying, my kingdom! But yeah, but, yeah. yeah, but see, that comes down to gatekeeping, you know, which I dislike intensely. When when it comes to, to fandoms, I'm one of those people that will, like most people, start out as a very casual fan. You know, and once I get steeped in the world, I still remember that I used to be a casual fan. Um, I will talk to people, especially new fans, about the genres and, you know, be more than happy to share my interests and, in, you know, this is where I got started and this is what I love. But most established fans don't do that. Mm. Once they feel like they've absorbed what can be absorbed from that world, they take possession of it in a dare I say, dwarfishly greedy way <laughs> and don't allow any new people in. And the new people that do come in, they try to make it so obtuse and and difficult for them that sometimes people will just drift away because they feel like unless I start getting, you know, plastic surgery to alter my ears and, you know, has shaved my, you know, and have the bones in my legs cut down so that, you know, I can be five foot two also, I obviously can't enjoy this story. And that's terrible to me because you're, you're running away somebody that might have loads of new ideas and things that they could discuss with you. And I hate that so much. Don't really blame you on that, but I kind of went to it from the other end of things. I was once the gatekeeper. I was one of those people that was saying, okay, this is the thing that's important to me, and it's something that I grew up with and something that I was connected to, and I felt very strongly about it. And when I started seeing that there were more trends towards people being into what I was into, instead of saying, oh, cool, more people to talk to, more people to hang out with, and this is going to be awesome, instead of doing that, I said, wait a minute. Where are all these people coming from? And why in the world did they have the nerve to get in on my thing that's special to me and that nobody really cared about until it became popular again? And that <laughs> ate a real jerk out of me. When yeah. I realized how much of a, a, a 
pain in my own ass I was becoming <laughs> by the the sheer effort of trying to make people feel bad because they didn't know as much about mm-hmm. comics as I did or sure. that they didn't know as much about anime as I did or mm-hmm. they didn't have you know the deep intimate understanding of you know the backgrounds of different stories and where different artists were born and came from and things like that <laughs> I figured that that was stuff that made me an authority and I realized mm-hmm. yeah that's not true what all it does is make people say, okay, you suck. I'm going to go find someone who doesn't. <laughs> Unfortunately, most of the Tolkien fans that I've encountered, um, other than those, I would say, outside of my most immediate friend group, are pretty much that guy. Mm-hmm. And they've been that guy for 30 years. You know, they feel like, oh, well, you know, I started reading this book back in college, you know, back in the 70s when it was, you know, a cheap paperback that you bought for 25 cents. And. Nobody knew what it was. And, you know, I personally wrote a letter to Professor Tolkien before he died. And, you know, he didn't get a chance to answer me, but that doesn't matter. I mailed it to his house. And, you know, suddenly that, you know, makes you the all, you know, all knowing, all, you know, all powerful St. Peter at the gates of Tolkien's home. Mm. And it's like, ah, no, it just makes you an asshole. (laughs) Thanks. Actually, points you more towards trying to be Sauron, damn it. (laughs) Well, yes, exactly. Mm. I mean, I remember soon after the movies came out, you know, this is early 2001. Um, I remember going to the library and, you know, getting online and looking at Lord of the Rings stuff. And I wanted to look at pictures from the movies and all these screenshots. And, and I was like, you know, Elvish sounds like a really great language, you know? And I started going to these message boards and I'm like, you know, I'm looking to learn it. You know, the books, the movie introduced me. I'm really interested. And I immediately got shut down. I mean, instantly, the responses on the message boards were, well, obviously you haven't read the book, so you know, I don't think I can help you. Did you look in the book? Because there's stuff in the book. And that was it. That's literally where it began and ended. I was like, wow, these are not nice people. Nope. So I drifted away from the fan boards, and I just began curating things for my own personal use. And yeah, I mean, I can, you know, I have a Cinder and Dictionary now. Mm-hmm. I, I found some online. But because of that initial reticence of people who had been in the fandom for a while to even just nicely say, hey, if you go to the index in the, you know, the back of the third book, they didn't even say which book it was, just go to the book. It's not the Bible. That's mm-hmm. the only book that gets referred to as the book, and everybody knows what you're talking about. Yeah. But, you know, to even just to say, hey, it's in the back of Return of the King in the indices, um, and there's more information on here. Just even one person doing that would have made me stay, but that never happened. And so my interest in learning that kind of drifted away because my impression was that the people that were involved in it were not were unkind and I didn't want to be associated with that. You know, so it is an unfortunate thing that that happens in a lot. And I mean, a lot of old fandoms. A good friend of mine has been catching me up on the uh, the Wheel of Time series, which, if Mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken, uh, is going to be getting uh, either Amazon or a Netflix series. I'm trying to remember which. There is a gentleman who was uh, moderating a a website for Wheel of Time fans for 25 years. And he just recently shut it down because people were being assholes about the Uh. whole situation 
acting That's a fool, terrible. talking a bunch of bull, and doing their absolute best to annoy everybody. They were trolling like crazy, and it shouldn't have been happening. Yes, it's a fantasy book, but there should not be any trolling going on in the message boards. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. I mean, I've tried to read The Wheel of Time before, but it is so dense. I mean, I felt like I was wading through the begats in Genesis, and I just couldn't do it. <laughs> um, so I kind of hopped out of that before I ever really got into it. But if they were doing a TV series, like I said, for me, watching, of seeing something, you know, a visual of it, even if it's somebody else's interpretations of those characters, is enough to give me a mental picture that I can then sit down and start reading. And that's, for me, what I did with The Lord of the Rings. After the first two movies came out, you know, my brother and my sister were like, hey, let's read Return of the King before that last movie comes out. Mm. So that's what they did. They sat down together and read Return of the King. I was just like, mm, whatever, I'm not interested. I'll wait till the movie comes. I'll wait till it comes out. And then, you know, I'll just watch all the, all the movies and I'll be fine. Well, after all the movies came out, then I kind of started going back and reading the books again. But because I love history so much, I kept going back to my copy of the Silmarillion. And mm. I kept thinking, I can't, I want to read this. You know, I know this story now. I want to read this book. And it took a while. And I ended up having to use an audiobook to do it as a read along with the audiobook. Mm-hmm. But I was able to finish it. And I'm glad I did because there's so much there. You know, not to pull the Uber fan card, but Tolkien essentially started writing this in the trenches during World War I. Mm-hmm. And he would get to a certain point, and I have a kind of a nasty habit of, as a writer of doing this myself, mm-hmm. where he would get to a point where he wasn't sure what he was doing, so he would just set the whole thing aside, pick up a piece of paper, and start writing all over again from the beginning. He didn't edit it. He would just start rewriting the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sometimes that's more satisfying, so I can understand where that comes from. Because when I was writing short stories, one of the problems I would always have is that I would have such a bonza idea, and I was like, oh, I got to get this down on paper right now. And I would start writing, and I would lose my train of thought as I was making my way through. And even Mm. after rereading everything, it still didn't feel right. So I would start again, and then I would get that steam going again, and... Then I would lose my train of thought again. I'm like, nah, I don't, I don't feel right about it. So yeah, I would set it aside, and it would stay, you know, where it was for months on end. And I was like, mm-hmm. I never stop writing this, and then go through the <laughs> process over again ad infinitum. <laughs> well, he kept doing that, and after he died, his son Christopher um, was like, I started going through my dad's papers, and there's so much stuff here. I don't even know where to begin. Some of these are like scribbled on the corners of napkins and envelopes, and what am I even doing with my life? But he eventually got you know enough of the together to make sense and put together the Silmarillion. He's still not even 100% sure if this is really what his father wanted or even if he ever wanted this to be published. Mm. But for me, it offers so much insight because for me, real world wise, looking at history, like some people specialize, like some people are only interested in the Middle Ages and some people are only interested in European history and some people are only interested in American history. For me, it's what's happening in that year because that whole year, the whole planet is doing stuff. I want to know what everybody was doing during XYZ amount of time. Mm. You know, and when you start looking at it that way, as opposed to just pigeonholing yourself, you start to see a really interesting picture emerge. 
which for me, I've noticed that there's a lot of wars at the same time, a lot of really major political shifts during certain amounts of time, and they're all happening simultaneously in different places all around the world. Mm. And that, to me, is utterly fascinating. And to me, that's kind of what the Silmarillion is like. It's watching those it's watching those different chunks of politics and movement and, and, you know, just general people just taking place all at once in different places. And it's, it's just, I don't know, I'm rambling and it's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> but it is actually quite a, an interesting way of looking at things. When you look at actual world history, yes, every second of every day, people are doing completely different things at different places on the planet during a, a specific period of time. It should kind of be accepted that that same kind of thing is happening when you look at fantasy. Now, there's a lot of times where writers don't really touch on that. So it's somewhat unique that uh, Tolkien had taken the time to think out a backstory for what was going on, as well as giving you know, his, his original story a history, because it makes for substance, if you ask me. Because yes, when oh, a character, absolutely. yeah, when a character exists just to exist, that's okay. But if that character's existence has a lineage, if how they mm -hmm. act, the things they say, the things they do come from somewhere, mm -hmm. it gives the reader a reason to care. I agree exactly, and and you know it makes people like Elrond, who's like everybody's favorite, you know, boss ass elf. I mean, I'm sorry, but he rocks a tiara in a way I never, ever could. And I would still be scared. I'm still scared of him. Um, <laughs> you know, it makes his, his lineage so much more interesting when you start going back and you realize he's not just this old man that lives in Rivendell, you know, consults with Gandalf and, and you know, sends the, the fellowship on their way. His mother... His grandmother, rather. Remember that Baron and Luthien I talked about that I don't, yes. that I don't really care for? Mm -hmm. Those are his great-grandparents. Hmm. Luthien's parents, her mother was one of the lower gods, and her father is one of the first elves that were ever born on, on in Middle-earth. Okay. Those are her parents. He has a really long and storied lineage of, you know, gods and men in his background, and all that together adds a lot more gravity and weight to that particular character. And it makes me love him even more. But if you've never read The Silmarillion, you don't know that. You know, he's just an interesting character that happens to live in, you know, Rivendell, and then you just kind of dismiss him. Mm. But, you know, that, that to me adds, all those things add up to, you know, creating a really fascinating world. And I love Tolkien's world building. And I'm glad that I got into the series because it, has 100% changed the way that I even write my stories. Mm. Because now I get obsessed with world building, sometimes <laughs> to the point of craziness, but I get obsessed with world building, which I used to never do before. You know, before it was just blank heads doing things, but you know, now I want to I want them to have to be grounded in something and I appreciate that. You know, and that's kind of the reason why I'm worried about the Amazon series because mm. they haven't the producers haven't really talked about what they're going to be doing and the only thing that we've only things that we've seen as far as, you know, publicity for it are a map that they released earlier in 2019 mm. showing the world, showing Middle Earth, and it included the island of Numenor, which again, if you've never read the Silmarillion, doesn't really mean anything. Mm. But what Numenor was was a special piece of land the gods raised out of the ocean for men to live on who had not sided with 
Sauron's boss during the last major war that they had in Middle Earth. Okay. Tell me to stop if I'm rambling. Not keep and, going. I'm, <laughs> I'm enjoying this. Please continue. All right. So then these these men, there were three houses of men who had stayed faithful, and they were sent to they were given this piece of land to live on as a reward. And as part of their reward, while they couldn't the while the the Valar, who were the gods, could not make them immortal, they couldn't make them live a very, very long time. So that's what they did. They gave them extremely long life while they were living on, in Numenor. Now, the first king of Numenor was Elrond's twin brother, hmm. Elros. And the two of them, because of something that their father did, were given a choice because their mother was an elf and their father was like, a, no, their mother was, a, yeah, their mother was an elf and their father was a human. So they were given a choice. They could either be elves or they could be men. And Elrond chose to be judged among the elves, and his brother Elros chose to remain a human. And so he was made the first king of Numenor, and he lived for like 800 years before Hmm. he died. So his family was the ruling family in Numenor, and Elrond went and became a servant to an elf, to another elf, whose name I cannot remember right off the top of my head. And um, and he did that for, you know, he was like a herald or something like that for a few hundred years. And I'm sure he went to Numenor to visit his brother and all that fun stuff. But he stayed in Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that was the map that they released. So people got super excited when they saw that Numenor was on there. They're like, oh, my God, it's set in the Second Age. This is awesome. Think of all the stories. Everybody started cracking out their copies of the Silmarillion and looking up stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, OK, that's great. But you still haven't said anything else. You know, we know that the budget's going to be, they're looking at least a billion dollars for this, making this literally the most expensive TV show ever produced, mm-hmm. ever, hard stop. And that's it. That's literally all we know. <laughs> we don't know where it's going to be filmed. Um, if they have any sense, they'll do it in New Zealand, because they've already got those, I mean, we've already had a walking tour of New Zealand in six movies, and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, New Zealand is Middle Earth. You literally cannot film it anywhere else. <laughs> talking about oh well, well you could use scotland and everyone's going why really? <laughs> i mean think about this for a second the reason why there's not a lot of movies that are filmed in scotland england or any part of the uk that have any kinds of of uh variation in their other uh backgrounds is because the entire country is gray yeah. the weather hates the uk <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. <laughs> not even going to so, lie there. <laughs> yeah, it would not make sense to shoot a, a movie or a TV show that has that kind of scope that we've gotten used to from the other uh, Peter Jackson films. There's no reason whatsoever to try and put it in a place where the very elements will be fighting you. Yes, exactly. And the thing is, there's so many... landmarks and things that have been used in the movies that we're used to see. We know what they look like. You know, I know what Mount Cook looks like because that has now become the Misty Mountains. (laughs) I'm sorry, but you cannot transplant that to anywhere else. Just go to New Zealand. It's right there, you know? (laughs) And I'm sorry, but, you know, New Zealand 
would be super excited if they came back and filmed there. They was like, yeah, sure, we are Middle Earth. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Bring it back. We don't Let's care. get some tourism going on here because more people will want to visit us. Are you kidding? They're doing tourism business hand over fist because after The Hobbit finished shooting, they decided to build Hobbiton permanently. Mm-hmm. I heard about the- that. Yes. So, okay. A little bit of inside baseball here. When I was working at the Target in PA, I'm not going to say which one. Somebody came in to get their pictures printed out while I was working at the service desk, which means I was also running the photo counter. Mm. And some of the pictures that she printed from she and her office's group uh, vacation that they went on to New Zealand, they went to Hobbiton. And they had pictures. (laughs) And... I spent a long, long time drooling over those pictures. <laughs> I was so jealous. Uh, and I was there the day she came in to pick up her pictures, and I was just gushing like crazy. I'm like, I'm sorry, I was looking at your pictures, but oh my god! And she's just <laughs> hysterical. She's like, oh yeah, me and a couple of them, we snuck away, and we went to Majamata to go, to go to Hobbiton, and nobody knew we were going. I was just like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> this is just the best thing ever. So, yeah, it's there. They are doing tourism business hand over fist. <laughs> the Green Dragon! You can go into the Green Dragon and have a beer if you want to! <laughs> That's friggin' awesome, too. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But there is one thing that, that I am going to bring up here when it comes to the aspect of a TV show versus the aspect of a movie or a book. The one thing that, that I've always seen when any time anytime something gets adapted into a TV show is that you have a lot more options as to how to tell a story. And that can be for good or ill because when you give people options, a lot of times the choices they make aren't the best ones. That's true. However... I would have to say, based on the sheer rabidity of the fan base Mm. and the fact that these books have been done for a long time, which is where, I mean, I hate to say it, where Game of Thrones fell down because George R.R. Martin ran out of ideas. (laughs) So they just kind of winged it for the last couple of, for the last few episodes of season eight, and so everyone was mad. Um... I mean, I've never seen a fandom go from, oh, my God, to hoes mad so fast in my life. But anyway, um, so because they already have these established books and everything's kind of already there for them, there's no deviating from the sources because people will call them out on it. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to have a lot tighter reign than they think they will on what kind of, what they can do with those stories. Now, I can agree with you. Because when you have something that has a beginning, middle, and end, it's a lot harder to make variation. But life finds a way when it comes to these kind of things. For example, one of the reasons that, as a Green Lantern fan, I have so many frustrating conversations with people. (laughs) Because the first thing most people under, I'd say, the age of 30 say Uh to me, when I tell them I'm a fan of Green Lantern, the first thing they say is, oh, well, you only like Green Lantern because the first one was black. And I want to throw things at these people. Uh, no. Yeah. The reason why that happened, though, was actually a calculated thing. And I can't say that it was a bad choice 
as far as the show went. Because uh -huh. the Justice League show, when it came out in 2000, the reason they chose Jon Stewart was because he wasn't as well-known a character as Hal Jordan. Even sure, though he sure. did have a very established background. Uh -huh. We knew where he came from. We knew what his family life was like. We knew how he lived. We knew tons of stuff about him. But because he wasn't as popular, most uh -huh. people weren't aware that they could find this information. And uh -huh. as such, they had a little more flexibility with his backstory. With Hal Jordan, everybody knows, yeah, Hal Jordan's Green Lantern. Okay, makes sense. We know exactly what the situation is. We know his story. We know how to do it. It's like when they tell the other, the, the, uh, the backstory for Batman. It's like, well, uh -huh. the backstory for Superman or Spider-Man. These are stories we know. The same kind of thing can be done with this uh, uh, Second Age show, but I can agree with you because the, the fandom will be full of people who are just uh -huh. waiting to point out things that are wrong. Uh-huh. Yeah, and they're going to hold them to tight accountability, I think. I mm -hmm. mean, at most... Um, which, uh, and I, okay, now, I personally thought this was a great choice on Jackson's part during The Hobbit. Mm. Um, for certain scenes, especially with things that were happening with Gandalf and Radagast, um, when we left the, the company for a bit, he had gone back into the indices in the back of Return of the King Ooh. and pulled out the stories that Gandalf told to Frodo after the battle, after the, uh, the last battle. Mm. So he took that information and just dropped it into the movie, which helped flesh out the story. People were angry about this, which I do not understand why. I will never understand why. But all he was doing was taking information that Gandalf had already given, that Gandalf gave to Frodo and said, where he says, this is what I was doing while your Uncle Bilbo was off at the mountain. He just took that information and showed it to us, thus completing the story. People were mad about this, which I don't understand. And I'm going to keep saying that. I don't get it. I'm right there with you. That doesn't make any sense. So they can take the Silmarillion and use that as their main source of material. But they also have the indices that they can take. And there's tons of stories in there about the creation of Durin's folk. So we get more information about the backstories of the elves, about the dwarves, I mean, because they were very important in the Second Age. Um, especially the petty dwarves, which don't even exist anymore. Um... And because uh, the petty dwarves were actually smaller than the real, regular dwarves, and they were like almost the same size, if not even a little bit smaller than hobbits, mm -hmm. but they were kind of assholes. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> Again, you, know, like, you know, of course, they're called petty dwarves for a reason. I'm sure. I'm sure it wasn't because they tried to cheat you when you when you were trading with them, but yeah, not at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that there's there's information there. You know, so my question is, why would you resent somebody tapping the sources that are available to them? Um, but yeah, the, I I just I think because of the way this fandom is, and because of the amount of gatekeeping that they engage in, yeah, any deviation is going to cause a ruckus. I think the only thing that they, the producers really have, you know, a, uh, a free hand with is going to be more or less what the characters look like because there's very little description of them. Okay. I now mean, that, that, like, that actually we know, was something I was going to ask about. Yeah. Mm. I mean, we know some people have blonde hair, some people have red hair, but beyond that, we don't know what they look like. So, you know, that's easy enough to do. But okay. beyond that, you know, we're golden. Okay. So that brings me to something that I was actually kind of amused about when I was uh, rewatching the movie. Mm -hmm. The way that the different characters are presented 
in uh-huh. the Jackson films versus the Bakshi films is <laughs> like night and day to me. Oh, and gosh, yes. I'm actually amused by this because I'm thinking about it as you're describing uh, Elrond's past, his, his history, his family. Mm-hmm. And I really do think that Peter Jackson hit the nail on the head with the casting, as well as having the, the elves be dressed and carry themselves the way that they do, because it feels a lot heftier. It has a lot more gravitas to it. Mm-hmm. Looking, at, looking at Bakshi's version of Legolas, for example. Mm. Yeah. Oi, this guy. He does <laughs> not strike me as somebody who is as capable a fighter, capable an archer, or you know, as capable of a, you know, a character, because I was going to say as capable a person, but he would probably take offense to that as well. <laughs> uh, but the way that Legolas is presented in the Jackson film. Yes. He's a badass. Oh, absolutely. And he knows he's a badass. And And you know what? You can feel that he is the heir to an ancient throne, and he's Hmm. aware of that situation. You do not feel that in the Bakshi films. Not even a little bit. He is so... He he feels limp-wristed, to be perfectly honest. It's like they castrated the character. Oh, and oh my god, please, I have to say it, even if you don't, would Aragorn please put on some pants? Thank you, thank you, Elijah, <laughs> thank you. I have pajama shirts that are longer than the tunic he's wearing. <laughs> the only I'm sorry, character that was all Frankenbeans there. There was nothing <laughs> to the, the imagination. Only the only character I've ever seen wear less than him is He Man from the '80s. Good God! <laughs> thank you. And even he had on pants. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, but yeah, you know what? And the reason that Tolkien did the elves the way that he did, again, going back to the scholars, Go for but it. they said that Tolkien was not pleased with the way that elves had been diminished in folklore. Because originally in the older stories, the elves are a lot like the way that he presents them in his books. Mm. They are old. They're as old as the earth. And there is, you know dignity to them but as time has gone on by the time you get to the victorians which is when tolkien grew up you know as a very late you know victorian early edwardian Mm. the elves have been diminished you know elves had been diminished to nothing more than you know basically fairies without wings Mm. um and he did not like that so he wanted to bring dignity and gravitas back to these creatures and that's what he was striving to do with the elves and the way he portrays them. And then, yeah, Jackson took it that one step further. And suddenly, you know, elves are not, you know, just these weird Christmas creatures mm-hmm. that, you know, you see that you stick up in your house and go, they're watching you because Santa's watching you. No. <laughs> I mean, could you see somebody using Legolas as an elf on the shelf? I mean, let's Hell just be no. real here. Exactly. No, Legolas is the one that comes when you mess up. That's what it is. <laughs> Exactly. It was like, forget the lump of coal, you're about to get an arrow shaft in your nuts. <laughs> exactly. I mean, could you see, you know, Thranduil coming down the chimney to bring you presents at Christmas time? It's not happening. Mm-mm. You know, he'll, he's coming to raid the bar in your house, but he's not bringing you gifts. Absolutely. Okay, just saying. Then he'll probably kill you on the way out. <laughs> Murder! So much more <laughs> <to> immortal! <laughs> exactly. I mean, he so, you know, Jackson made an effort, and I'm really glad that, you know, he really took it that extra step, you know, to give these characters, you know, dignity. You know, my favorite scene, or one that comes back to me a lot in Return of the King, is when Elrond is talking with Arwind, and he's telling her, you know, that Aragorn is not going to live forever. 
you are, you know, what, how are you planning on dealing with that? You know, and they showed that scene with her standing over his tomb, you know, dressed in black with the, with the, with the veil on and it's just blowing in the wind. Mm. That scene, even if you is so, even without knowing the context, just looking at a screenshot of that is so evocative, you know, of just, everything that the elves are and what they are and what they've gone through and just you know the dried leaves blowing through and you're sitting there and you want to weep with her because you know that you know this is the most important person in her life and there's nothing she could have done to save him and yet there is dignity in his death and there is dignity in her mourning but you can't you're not going to take you know a christmas elf and put them in that same situation those are two very different creatures mm-hmm. as far as you know design and 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 execution are and that's what tolkien wanted to bring back to these people and i think he did it Uh, whenever you you take any uh character that has a historical following there's a very thin line that you can tread and it's always difficult in my opinion to find the right amount of combination so Mm -hmm. with what i've experienced both watching the uh the films and just the people that I've talked to that know the you know the Lord of the Rings books a lot better than I do, mm-hmm. I can understand the difference in the view of the characters and the the lineages that they have there. Because when I think of dwarves, I think of Gimli every mm-hmm. freaking time. You know that is what I picture is Peter Jackson's casting for Gimli. Anytime mm-hmm. I think yeah. of dwarves, because yeah. it feels right, basically. Uh, when I think of elves, there's actually two things that I think of. First mm-hmm. of all, Elrond is the first thing that comes to my mind. And directly after that is uh, the elves from a pen and paper game that I played in, uh, in college that was called Dark Sun. Mm-hmm. Dark Sun had these elves that were completely different from what most people were used to. The sure. whole, you know, Christmas elves thing was not something that was happening. <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, these tiny little, you know, uh, creatures that were, you know, sweet and cute. No, these guys were six and a half feet tall, mm. fast, evil, and badass. <laughs> like, they were coming for you because <laughs> this was such a, a hostile environment that mm-hmm. the only way that they survived as long as they did was get in, strike hard, and get out. You know, these are tough creatures. So when I watched the Lord of the Rings for the first time and saw how Legolas fought, Mm -hmm. I said to myself, yeah, that's an elf. That works for me. Mm -hmm. When they first come across Elrond, the look in his eyes, the way he carries himself, the attitude that he had, that to me is an elf. That makes sense to me. Yes. When I I was watching the Bakshi films, eh, not so much. Because Elrond... He looked like he was bored, first off. Second, he was like, why am I even here? Third, he didn't look like an elf. He looked like a man who just happened to have a high chair. Yeah, and and, and a weird, like, orbit of stars, you know, around his head for some reason. That Mm. part made no sense. I get he needed a crown. Mm. Don't know why you needed... They felt the need to put a galaxy in orbit around his head, though. (laughs) Still... Wondering about that. <laughs> do that effect that were not that. <laughs> okay, I know you haven't gotten to the hobbits yet in Bakshi, mm. but um, you should see what they did with Thranduil. Mm. 
to me, Thranduil is, you know, Lee Pace with his six being six and a half feet tall and intimidating as hell. Which, by the way, he actually is six foot five. That part is just funny to me. Mm. But, you know, with his thick, dark eyebrows and those piercing blue eyes and he just looking right through you before he slices you in half and then dismisses you. Mm. Bakshi drew him to look like this weird goblin. And he has a very high squeaky voice. And he's <laughs> just like this and it's very annoying. And it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> it's just like, that is not... And like you never see the wood elf, the like the Merkwood elves. You don't really see them. They're just kind of high squeaky voices off in the distance, and it's very weird. Uh, that's actually one trick that I don't like in animation when they use voice acting to portray something that they're not actually animating. Uh-huh. It feels it feels empty, to be perfectly honest. I yeah. understand the reasons for some of that. Like, for example, if you've got you know, a low budget for, you know, mm-hmm. for instance, uh, you're trying to save you know money wherever you can. I have no issues with that. What gives me pause when it comes to stuff like that is that when you're animating something, you literally have control of everything. You have mm-hmm. control of the look and feel of an uh, of an environment. You have control of how the characters are going to act and react. You have control of what a person's going to see. That's part of the reason why Japan's movie industry for a very long time was almost all animation. Because yep. if you wanted it to look impressive and keep people's attention, you drew that mess. Mm-hmm. Because, let's be honest, Japan did not have Hollywood. Their no. movies did not look all that convincing. So <laughs> animation gave them the the ability to make something that was interesting to watch and really put a vision out there that that fit what the you know producers and the directors and the animators were really trying to do. Yep. Bakshi tried to shortcut some of these things, but mm. the way he did it made a lot of sense for me because let's be honest, the rotoscoping technique allowed for a lot of depth in a lot of his other work. Sure. Lord of the Rings, it just seemed a little lazy, to be honest. Half yeah. of that movie is pretty much a live-action movie with colors put over it. Yeah. It start- yeah. <laughs> but by people who have, like, like a, like a, you know, a small town, you know, theater troupe that doesn't really know what they're doing, they just got the script after this afternoon, and they're just kind of walking through it. Mm. It's kind of how I felt. I mean, I wasn't impressed. I'll be honest. I'm, I, I, I really. I mean, I've watched it for the novelty of it, you know, because I was in that. That was the point where I was like, "Give me all of it. I don't care." <laughs> and now, now that I've seen them, it's just like, oh, okay, that's a thing that exists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. And coming back to uh, my comic book background i actually have an experience that is similar to that (laughs) 1999 Uh. it is something that happened that i think that everyone involved wished didn't happen and the only reason that i remember this is because (laughs) i sought it out and i have to say i laughed because it existed and it hurt because it existed there was a made-for-TV movie that Cartoon Network made for the Justice League. Okay. 
there was so much wrong with this. <laughs> Not because it was something that was done, but because of how poorly it was done, first oh. off. Second, how much effort you saw put into the wrong things. Oh, and no. third, how they decided who was going to be what character. I don't uh, know no. what their process for casting was, but mm-hmm. whoever was in charge of it had to have been high. <laughs> because some of the actors they chose for the characters that they were playing did not have the ability to act mm. in, a, in a manner that that conveyed hey, I know I'm in something that's being filmed and is going to be watched by someone someday. Right. The amount of ridiculousness that I saw in this thing mm-hmm. actually was unpleasant as I was experiencing it. Before I even <laughs> had a chance to process what my eyes were seeing shooting into my brain before I had the chance to flip it over and say, okay, this is a thing that's happening in front of my face. I was already in pain. <laughs> for example the one thing that happened during this this entire film it was like an hour and change and it was an hour and change too long by the way the one thing that happened during this whole thing that frustrated me more than anything mm-hmm. is that the guy they had playing barry allen the entire time he is using the speed force to his advantage i'm talking okay. about it did not matter what he was doing he was moving fast as he possibly could. Like he would what, be to go to the in, toilet, get coffee to, you know, make breakfast, to get dressed, to, you know, get to and from work, to, you know, help his friend move stuff, that kind of thing. Everything he did was at, you know, you know, supersonic speed and he would just show up in a scene, say a couple lines and disappear and then come back on the other end of the scene, say something else and disappear. And then he would realize, oh, wait, that's right. Nobody moves as fast as me. That, that frustrated me so badly because uh, it didn't fit. It didn't feel right. Because well, that's Barry not doesn't how Barry do that. that. No, that's, he does that, that's, that's a teleportation that used to be a dick cliche. That's, I mean, yes. like, Barry doesn't do that. I mean, he kind of does stuff like that in the cartoon. Sometimes, like, he'll just leave and then show back up to, like, say a one-liner and then Batman will punch him or something. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't, like, do that as a, on a regular basis. He's just trying to be funny. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the kind of thing that, that feels mm-hmm. off. It feels awkward. When you yeah. compare how the, the Bakshi Lord of the Rings looks and feels... Compared to Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, like I said earlier, they are very different movies. Yeah. They tell the same basic story, but they do it in such different ways that if you did not tell somebody that these were both called the Lord of the Rings, they would not know. They would have no clue that these were the same movie. Yeah. Well, that's the reason that there's only two of them. There's only Lord of the Rings and Return of the King. They Mm. never did Two Towers. Not because it doesn't exist. I mean, we all know it's there, but because they couldn't get the budget because the first one went over so badly. Mm, gotcha. And it, people were so excited about it when it came out because they were like, oh my God, this is the first Lord of the Rings. You know, we've only had audiobooks and audio plays up to this point, which by the way, I've listened to those. Mm. Ian Holm, who played old Bilbo in the mm. Lord of the Rings, actually plays Frodo in one of the audio in one of the audio productions that the BBC did. That's and it's actually cool. 
really good. I really enjoy it. I, I, I go back and listen to it. I think I've listened to it four or five times now. Just uh-huh. like periodically, just like, you know what? I feel like listening to Lord of the Rings. And so I'll pull that out. It's fantastic. Um, that's an aside. But people were like, oh, my God, you know, well, this is going to be a Lord of the Rings movie. OK, yeah, it's a cartoon. But, you know, basically what everyone said about the Lord of the Rings was that it was unfilmable. Mm. It could not be made into a decent movie. Mm. That was the consensus everywhere after those books came out. You you cannot make this into a movie. It is utterly impossible. It would be impossible to watch. No one can do it. <laughs> so Bakshi said, hold my beer. Mm-hmm. And then he made the cartoon. And it came out. And everybody that wanted to see it went to go see it. And they said, our statement still stands. No one can make this into a decent, watchable movie. Mm-hmm. And Peter Jackson said hold all my beer <laughs> and made it into a watchable movie that has won all the awards. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just a matter of how you approach that script. And most people's idea of it was to just take it literally and just do it and copy it exactly. And, and that brings That's... me to another pet peeve of mine mm. is that people who don't understand the difference between a book and a movie. Mm-hmm. A book is fine. Books are great. I love books. I live and breathe books. Most of my job, best jobs have been in bookstores. My first job was in a four-story book, used book depository that they should have just paid me in books in. (laughs) And I was only making like $170 a a week. They should have just paid me in books. Gotcha. But when you adapt, look it up if you don't know what it means adapt a book into a movie changes have to be made because you're going from reading to a visual medium like film you can't take every single description that's in that book you just figure out a way to make the sets say what's you know five paragraphs in that book Mm. and you only need 30 seconds for your brain to establish that this is your setting and then you move on Mm. you know it's three words show don't tell exactly You know, and those long walking montages that everybody makes fun of, that it's become a meme now, but we still love them because it gives us all the beautiful views of New Zealand. Mm -hmm. You know, that's chapters and chapters and chapters in the book, but we don't need to see them stopping and camping every single night. Logic dictates that they would, but we don't need to see that. Mm -hmm. But there are people that are literally mad because we don't get to see them stopping and camping every night. Okay, what would actually be the point of that in a two, two and a half or three hour movie? There's no I don't know. Because, I mean, okay, yeah, so they sit around the fire and sing songs and chit chat, but we can still do a walk and talk and still get Mm. the same effect. We don't need to be at a campfire. Mm. You can do, you can do one or two, you know, camping scenes and kind of give that same, you know, aspect going on, but you don't need to have that happen multiple times. There's no reason for it. If it doesn't work in a visual medium, you don't do it. That's just logical. Yeah, and they don't understand. A lot of people don't understand that. So they get angry when, you know, oh, well, they left out this scene and they left out that chapter. And it's like, yeah, but did that really move the story ahead? Mm. Or was that just character building that we already saw in, if you were watching, the breakdown of their clothes, the fact that their bags get smaller as they're walking, which, you know, is indicative of using up your supplies and, you know, mm-hmm. oh, their shoes are a little more dirty, you know, um, you know, whatever. There's ways to convey that information in shorthand in film that you don't have in a book. 
And again, I'm going to say it again. I love books. I love reading. But there are some times when you're reading where you're just skipping pages because it's description <laughs> after description after that you don't need that you get in a visual shorthand on film. The forward for the book, The 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, in the first paragraph of this thing, it says, be prepared because there are large numbers of lists in this book. <laughs> and when I read that, I was already ready to see you know, lists throughout the book. I did mm -hmm. not understand how <laughs> literal that sentence was. <laughs> because that is hands down about an eighth of the entire weight of the book wow. is just Jules Verne listing stuff that they saw. Well, they did get paid by the word. <laughs> so I get oh. it. But if you were to make that a film, you don't need that because you could just show us shots of them looking at shit out the window. Mm -hmm. It would just be, you know, a tracking shot of a bunch of things swimming around in the ocean in front of you. And that would cover the whole thing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I don't need to see detailed, you know, visions of every single thing that's down there. Mm -hmm. Just you show me that stuff is there. And if I'm really that curious, I'll buy the DVD and pause the video and go through it frame by frame if I'm really that curious. Mm. But it's not necessary in a visual medium. Very much so. Now, as we start winding this down, do you have any particular hopes for the Amazon show that's going to be you know, produced once you have some more information about it? I would say I hope they film it in New Zealand. I really do, because the, the, the scenery is incomparable, and we already have established that this is Middle Earth. Mm -hmm. I would hope that, at least, now this is on the production side right now, but I would hope they would consult Peter Jackson, because he's already done a lot of the work, and there's no need to rebuild the wheel. Mm -hmm. He's got sets, he's got costumes, he's got people at Weta that know this stuff and are more than happy to do to work on it more. Mm. Use Tap the resources that are already available to you. That's what I would say. Mm -hmm. as far as the script is concerned do a decent adaptation the work is there you know the scholar the Tolkien scholars are there the books are there just go back to them pull out what you need work with what you've got don't try to embellish it don't make it more than it is you know yeah sure in some places there's going to be some changes that need to be made to tell the story in a slightly less awkward way mm -hmm. which doesn't really translate from you know writing to film which i get that make those kinds of changes and yes there's places where you're going to have to add dialogue because it's just not there mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. fine i've got no issues with that as long as that dialogue pushes the story forward let's do that go mm -hmm. ahead give them all the conversations you want i would love to see more diversity but i know that's not going to happen mm -hmm. um i know some of the elves um on the hobbit like in the background or whatever were asian but you can't really see them. But that's about as close to diversity as you're going to get. Yeah, um, I mean, I would love to see some... I know, like, the Pukul men, which you run into in the books, um, are very aboriginal. But there's also something a little racist about them, so I could see not including characters like that. Be a good idea, yeah. Especially but, because everyone these days has issues with 
literally any portrayal if it's mm-hmm. not 100% accurate to what it's supposed to be. Exactly. Now, I would love to see, like, the Harad, but at the same time, I would like for them to, I don't know, maybe maybe one side story where they meet somebody from, you know, the Southern Harad who maybe isn't a horrible person because I can't imagine every single one of them sides with Sauron. There has to be an underground there somewhere where people are, you know, willing to side with the Valar, but they just can't come out and say it because they'll get killed. You could have some diversity there because those are definitely more um, Middle Eastern types. Mm-hmm. So you could throw a few black people in there, in which case uh, um, I'm, I'm available as a background <laughs> actress. I'm more than willing to stand in the back and not do anything. He's like, I volunteer as tribute. <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, no, I lied. There were brown people in Dale. So we know there are some, we, we, we did see some brown people in Dale. So we know they're there. So let's get some in. Let's get some in. I'm willing to volunteer. I, I'm, I'll, I'll, I will work for pay. I mean, for food. Mm-hmm. I'm cheap. But, you know, that, I, that's what I'd love to see. You know, really do a really good story. You know you've got, you know, a lot of people, a lot of eyes on you looking at it. Mm-hmm. But, I don't know. Make it fun. Make it interesting. I don't know. I just... I'm just afraid that it's not going to... My expectations are going to be higher than what we're going to end up with. That's what I'm afraid of. The only thing I ever hope for especially for something that I know very little about, is that it does not play to the lowest common denominator. Because there is nothing more frustrating to me, especially about something new, than it being presented to me like I'm stupid. Yeah. There's nothing that hurts more than a person or a group of people who are presenting something that treat their audience like they don't have any understanding of things. Uh-huh. That that's still one of the most frustrating things for me about TV. That's why I can't watch television as easily as I used to. Uh-huh. I used to love watching television because it always seemed to open something up for me that no other you know uh, medium did. Yeah. Now it, it's literally, hey, here's a thing. This is what this thing is. Here's this thing again. You'll see this later. No, don't <laughs> do that. <laughs> Take the time to establish something and let people enjoy what you've established and then explain a little bit more. Give them little pieces here and there if it's necessary, but don't make the entire thing you holding up a sign saying, this is significant. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing. (laughs) This is character development. Yeah, no, I totally get that. And you know what? That's what I loved about the last um, Avengers movie. It didn't do any of that shit. It just jumped right in cold open. Mm -hmm. Oh, I freaking loved every second of that. A good friend of mine told me that I was going to be heartbroken in the first 10 seconds of that movie. I was like, there's no freaking way. Went to see it. I was like, now I get it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I mean when I say show, don't tell. Because they damn sure showed. Oh. Oh. That's how you do it. And that's yeah. how I hope they do this show. I really, really do. Yeah, I would <sighs> love that. I would love that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was it was kind of weird if you'd never seen any of these movies and, you know, you didn't know what was going on. You're a little confused, but you kind of get swept up in it. And you know that here we have the heroes. Here we have villains. They're fighting. You know, it's a basic story. But, you know, 
I think with a TV show, because you have the options of people being able to go back and rewatch episodes that they've missed, mm. you have that opportunity to do that cold open and just jump right into it, get started, and let people catch up as they can. But mm. still make it compelling enough that they're willing to come back for the next week. Be- well, not next week, because it's going to be on Amazon, so you know, mm. you'll have people like me that'll just binge-watch the whole thing in one go, mm-hmm. but are willing to continue watching. And as we move into that binge watch versus week by week culture, you're going to you have to step up your game. That is absolutely true, because we went through the same thing when Netflix first really started getting popular. Mm -hmm. Every person that was like, oh, my God, we got a whole season we can watch. Yeah. Two days later. Oh, when's the next season coming in? That's where we need to have that that uh, consciousness of how things are being presented, because you really don't have that time in between yeah. each episode for people to process things anymore. That's true. But even even with that being the case, we are starting to get to the uh, the the long end of this here. So if there are any reasons why we have to address things, it needs to always be the fandom isn't always right, but they are always important. So if a show's yeah. being made, consider the fans, yes. But don't talk down to anybody when it comes to it, because we don't want to keep people out of any fandom, but we do want to make sure that people who are already there want to stay. Because, like I told you earlier, an entire site, 25 years worth of moderation and conversation, gone in an instant because people want to be dicks. That's not Mm, good. I agree. Yeah. So as we come to the end of this, uh, if you want people to find you is there any place where we can find you um yes we i have ventured my toes into the water of uh facebook twitter and of course you know the ever-present email um mm-hmm. so um i think you've got those addresses yes you will be able to find these two young old people <laughs> on <laughs> facebook at uh, facebook.com slash little op podcast little on op twi- podcast okay yes on twitter at twitter.com slash little op podcast or at little op podcast. And if you'd like to send us an email telling us that we're awesome or that we suck and that you hate us or we don't do what you want us to do, or you have a suggestion of something that you want to hear us rant and rave about, you can send us an email at little old people podcast at gmail.com. Awesome sauce. All right, then. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Hopefully everyone's enjoyed this first episode and we will be back. Again, I can't guarantee when, but we will be back, I promise, with our Mm -hmm. next. All right. Mm -hmm. Loving every minute of it. So let's leave you guys with a little bit of fun. And the two of us will be back another time to just, you know, rant and rave on random fandoms. Take care and looking forward to, you know, talking at you again. I've been Chibi Mythos. He's been the little black dude. Absolutely. We can dance if we want to We can leave your friends behind Cause your friends don't dance And if they don't dance Well, they're no friends of mine See, we can go where we want to Place where they will never find And we can act like we come from out of this world Even though you're one far behind 